0: On today's episode, Ashley shares part two of the bizarre survival story of Denise Huskins and Aaron Quinn. If you haven't listened to part one, we suggest going back and doing so first. Welcome to Crime Bar. Okay, so I I didn't know until yesterday when that episode came out how many people listened to it right away. Or many people listened to our I didn't podcast. Know that, <laughs> I didn't know that anybody listened, much less like that many people listen within hours of its yeah. release. I always like schedule the episode to come out at like midnight. Mm-hmm. So then when I wake up, like I don't know how many people around yeah. the world or country have been listening. And I got so much so many people people I didn't mm-hmm. even know like reaching out to say stuff about well like how long it's going to take for part two to come out and yeah. so the reason we split this into two is because I hadn't it took so long to write this I hadn't even finished the second part so I had to stop. I didn't yeah. have it. And I didn't even have it ready. You written. didn't have an option. So then as soon as everybody started like freaking out, mm-hmm. I had to like scramble to finish it. And now we're going to record it. And like literally as soon as we finish, I'm going to edit it and release and then it. And release it. Yeah. My cousin Lainey just texted me and was like, we need part
1: two. We need part yeah, two. Chill out, like, people. We're on it, guys. But I get it. So yeah. I was trying. I too have actually been losing sleep over this. So I'm very yeah.
0: excited. Okay. So where we left off... Um, Denise was just raped and she's realized there's no way this looks consensual. So she knows that it's going to happen again. So after the kidnapper raped her, he guided her to the bathroom so she could shower to remove any evidence from her body. He speaks very softly and gently, almost like he feels guilty. And he told her, you can take the goggles off when you're alone in the room now. I left some toiletries on the counter for you. I know this has been hard for you and it's the least I can do. Just remember, we will know if you try to remove the covering from the window. When I come back, be sure to put the goggles back on and turn away before I enter. She said the way that he was like gentle and guilty, it like reminded her of the way an abusive spouse like tries to like repair yeah. after they've abused. I love you so much. It'll yeah, never I'm so again. sorry. Yeah, like that kind of thing. So she has had these goggles, these little swim goggles, yeah. suctioned around her eyes for like 14 or 15 hours by now without moving them Mm -hmm. so they're like like she's desperate to get these things off of her so as soon as he leaves she rips them off and she sees that on the counter the kidnapper has provided like brand new little travel size toiletries all lined up like as if she's in a hotel like garnier fruit teas like all those pantine ones yeah so after her shower and she's back in the room She asks him, like, what time is it? Because she's so disoriented. She has no idea, Mm -hmm. like, anything. She hasn't even even seen. Yeah. And he says, it's about 6 p.m. We left Aaron's house before sunrise, drove for about 45 minutes before transferring to the other car, and then it took us about three to four hours to get here. We arrived here around 10 a.m. And she's like, wow, Wow, he's, like, being so specific. Like, if I really wanted to, I could maybe piece together different locations because of that so he tells her he has to give her another dose of the sedative he says it's protocol and she accepts it because she just doesn't want to be awake she wants to escape this in any way that she can she fell asleep right away but sometime later she wakes up to find that while she was sleeping he neatly arranged a formal dining set on the dresser with wine and pizza and salad so she mm-hmm. scarfs it down and then just goes back to sleep because she just wants to be unconscious as much as she can. The next morning he comes in to check on her and she asks him if he's spoken to Aaron. Are there any new developments, anything like that? Does he think that she will be released in time for her to make it to work tomorrow? Obviously she's not asking because she intends to go to work but she wants to gauge like what his next steps are. And he responds in this very condescending way as if she's like stupid or naive. And he goes, I don't think that you realize the severity of the situation and how you will be affected by this. It's uh, going to be something that will take a long time to recover from. Work is the last thing for you to worry about. Thanks to the guy that just assaulted me. That sounds, that sounds great, I'll follow your cue. Yeah, so she asks him if he sent the rape, well, you know, she said video, but it's the rape video to his supervisor and he brushes it off and said he sent it but he hasn't heard back and he maybe he'll learn what they think um because some of the other people from the group need to stop by the house that they're at and he'll speak to them then he says they're coming to confirm that everything is in order and that he will have to zip tie her and attach them attach her hands to the headboard so that she can't move He says it's in her best interest to pretend she's sleeping because the others may not be as nice to her as he is. And obviously as terrified as she is, the devil, you know, at least is better Better than the devil. You don't. So she is actually very scared and completely is like, okay, okay, sure. And she actually asks him if he'll, if he's willing to give her another dose of the sedative, because she's just so terrified that she might hear or see something that will Result in them killing her that she just wants to be out. Like she's like, if I need to pretend to be asleep, I just want to be asleep then. And so he says, okay, he gives her another dose. And for some reason, this dose just didn't feel as strong. So it took a lot longer for it to kick in. So she's still somewhat conscious when she hears what sounds like a large truck pull up and park outside the house. She hears the truck door open, then the front door. And then she hears people walk towards her door and open it and her hands are zip tied like above her head and she's on her stomach and you know, her. So, and then she's like all buried under the blankets. And so while she stands there, she's like trying to breathe very subtly. Like she just is frozen. Mm-hmm. And after a few minutes, she feels the people leave and close the door. Mm-hmm. She like breathes mm-hmm. and then. She can hear, there's music on in the house somewhere, so she can hear like a muffled discussion, but she can't decipher how many people are there or what they're saying. And then after about 20 minutes, she hears the truck leave. And as the truck is driving away, the kidnapper comes back into the room and says they're gone and they won't need to come back. So he tells her they need to record something called a proof of life, which means he's going to ask her to record an audio clip of her identifying herself saying she's okay, acknowledging that she's safe. Uh, She has to prove the date by relaying something from the news from that day and then prove that it's really her by including a personal detail only people close to her would know about. Uh, So he coaches her through it, but she's super disoriented because the sedative is now kicking in and she's so scared that she's not going to do it right. So she's trying to like sound natural the way he wants relay exactly what he asks but she's literally drugged and she can tell as she's talking she's like slurring her words and there's like she you can just she can tell she sounds drugged um but as soon as she's done he's like okay that's good and she literally just like passes out she just like falls unconscious because she knew she took the sedative earlier in the day time just like doesn't exist now. Like she's so disoriented. She mm-hmm. she falls asleep and wakes up randomly and there's no telling if she slept for 10 minutes or 10 hours because she's got to keep the goggles on. And so she's very disoriented. And then she has dreams where she's being reunited with Aaron and her family oh. and her friends. And then she wakes up and realizes where she is. Then she falls right back to sleep and the cycle repeats like that. So she said that. Up until this point, she was just trying to comply, trying to be calm, trying to prove they could trust her to not act out or fight back or Mm -hmm. any of those things because they kept promising that she would get released. So she's trying to be um, compliant, compliant, as compliant as possible. But he claimed she wasn't going to be harmed. Then he rapes her. She suspects it's going to happen again. So the idea, she's starting to lose hope and she's thinking... Maybe they might kill me. I don't know. So she's considering if she senses that they might kill her, she needs to like kind of change course and stop accepting all of this sedative and yeah. trying to like it, a plan. Yeah. She needs to come up with some type of a plan. But what kind of plan can she come up You know, yeah. she, she's bound she the whole time. She, she doesn't even know where she is. She, you know, so she sort of starts to feel the presence of her grandmother who had passed away years ago. But also this very comforting presence of others that she didn't even know. And she felt like this was God's way of letting her know that she wasn't alone. And so this gave her a very strong sense of peace. And she felt comfort knowing that if death was the next step, she had her grandmother there to hold her hand and guide her through it. So back to Vallejo and Aaron. Colonel (laughs) Mustard. Back to Colonel Mustard over here. Uh, Vallejo PD's incompetence and terrible bedside manner was not only reserved for Aaron because when they called to inform Denise's parents that she was missing, all they told them was that Denise had been abducted and to quote, hope for the best, but expect the worst. Thanks. Perfect. So her dad, Mike, immediately left his home in Huntington beach and flew to Vallejo. Mm Mm-hmm. The police gave him absolutely no details. So the whole way there, he's wondering, like, what do they even mean by abducted? Was she, like, snatched off the sidewalk, like, walking to the store? Did someone grab her and, like, force her into a car? Like, what does that even mean? So he thought that going and speaking to them in person might result in more answers, but he was sorely mistaken. Denise's mom, Jane, she stayed behind in Huntington Beach because she had this feeling like she needed to stay home in case Denise somehow found her way there. And called the home phone. Even. No, she said just. Oh, just to that be She there? just felt, she felt like there was a chance that didn't, without even knowing the that specifics. she could show up. She just felt this, this feeling that Denise might come home to her mom. Gotta trust her gut. And it was this like, it was just such a gut instinct to stay put, Because she felt like her child was going to seek her out and she needed to be in a place that Denise would know to look for her. But after Mike arrived in Vallejo, he called Jane to tell her that the police had received a proof of life recording that might be from Denise. And they needed her to come and listen to it. So she and her son, um, Denise's brother, Devin, immediately flew to Vallejo And this in no way changed her gut instinct to stay home. But obviously, if the police need her help, she's going to run to them and help. So, Mike listened to the audio in a room with detectives and he knew it was Denise. She sounded off and certainly scared, but he knew without a shadow of a doubt that was his baby girl. Mm -hmm. Like he knew. And he was so relieved, obviously, because duh, she's alive. But then he looks up and he realizes the detective seems so angry that he confirmed it was her. They got up and they walked out of the room without saying a word. So so he like stands up and he like follows them. Yeah. And he walks out past him in the hall and none of them look at him as he walks away. They're disappointed that she's alive. Yeah. Because they just wanted to pin it on the husband or the boyfriend. I mean. Yep. So he leaves the station and then he gets a call from a reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle. They asked for comments regarding the proof of life audio because it turns out that the kidnapper said sent the audio to the paper in addition to the police. So the reporter asked Mike what he thought about Denise being released tomorrow because that's what the email accompanying the audio clip stated. And Mike was completely shocked because the police didn't say that to him. The email from the kidnappers read, quote, As stated, Denise will be returned safely tomorrow. We will send a link to her location after she has been dropped off. She will be in good health and safe while she waits. Any advance on us or our associates will create a dangerous situation for Denise. Wait until she is recovered and then proceed how you will. We will be ready. So Mike is like, oh my God. And he's like sitting there in his hotel room and he turns on the news and and he's again shocked to see live footage of the police searching the swamps near Aaron's house, obviously searching for a body. And he's like, what the hell is this? Like, we just listened to her recording from today. How could her body be behind Aaron's yeah. house? And then as he's sitting there watching it, a detective calls him to say, you're probably seeing us searching for a body on the news. And I just wanted to clarify, we're just we're just still investigating. Okay. And he wouldn't explain to Mike, why they were doing that so of course everyone knows like an open investigation they can't just share everything mm-hmm. and it's our instinct to trust that they probably know something we don't so yeah, he you have to cover your bases yeah so jane and her son Devin arrive at the play, vallejo police department and instead of being allowed to hear the proof of life audio which is why they thought they flew there a detective sits them down and spends an hour asking insulting and insensitive questions about denise it finally comes to an end when he asks Jane, has anything bad ever happened to Denise before? And Jane's like, oh, uh, she was molested as a child. Mm. Oh my God. What does that have to do with anything? Yeah. She just couldn't think of something. And okay. so that was all she could think of. The detective immediately stands up and walks out of the room. He comes back in with that idiot, Colonel Mustard. And Mustard sits down. He leans forward. He has a chunk of chewing tobacco in his lip and every so often spits into the cup he's holding while they talk. Classy. And I'm going to warn you, the quote that I'm about to give you, do not interrupt until oh, I long. say end quote. No, no, no. It's not long. It As is, I interrupt you. <laughs> it is um, powerful. It is so infuriating. Gotcha. So just let me get it out and then you can scream. Should I walk out of the room? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Go time. Okay, so he's so just picture it. Mm-hmm. He's this balding idiot <laughs> with the last name Mustard. <laughs> a bald and he's, idiot, and he is a know-it-all, and Ugh. he's trying to pin this on Aaron as a murder, and he's he's spitting, spitting. his chew in this Ugh. cup. It's just so gross. Yes, and he's speaking to the mother of the woman who is missing. Great. Okay. Mm-hmm. <sighs> He says to Jane, he looks her in the face, and with all seriousness, he says, quote, I just want you to know that in our experience, women who have been sexually assaulted before often pretend that it's happening again to get attention and relive the excitement and the thrill of that experience. End quote.
1: The excitement and the thrill that is the most insulting infuriating thing I've ever heard in my life. It's like the
0: life. most misogynistic. I th- this whole book that I read yeah. was very emotional and I read that and I immediately started crying. Yeah, that's like not funny. To hear like that. it's not it's not okay. Fuck that guy. This disgusting piece of shit doesn't stop there. Mm-hmm. All of the things that the detectives said to Jane and the question they the questions that they asked insinuated that Denise was at fault somehow and Mustard even told them that they should go home and watch the movie Gone Girl as a way to better understand what was happening. Jane said that not only were she and her family treated like they were related to a hardened criminal instead of a kidnapping victim, but that the detectives had zero reaction to she and Devin listening to the proof-of-life audio and confirming that it was in fact Denise. At most, they just seemed frustrated by the confirmation. So I can't possibly include every interaction that the victims and their families had with Matt Mustard and the Vallejo Police Department and the local FBI agents. And believe it or not, there are way more disheartening, disgusting interactions. But I tried to include some of the worst and enough yeah. to make you get the idea. really get the idea yeah. of what they how with. horrible these authorities were. Yeah. So now we're back with Denise. The kidnapper comes into the room to take her for another bathroom break. And he lets her know that they've lost contact with Aaron. And obviously she is panicked all of a sudden because it sounds like this is a large organization. They've claimed that they're watching every move. And she's thinking, oh, my God, to kill him. Yeah. So he tells her that he either went to the police or decided against doing the tasks that they instructed him to do. But he says it's not a big deal if he did go to the police because that will mean lots of media coverage and it's good PR for their group. This story will show that their organization is serious yet capable of not hurting the captives. Oh, so they're going to use this as a reference? Like they're going to get all the footage together, do a little portfolio? He goes on to explain that he doesn't know who hired them because the organization tries to keep things separated. Mm Mm-hmm. That way, if anything gets exposed during a mission, the other group members are all protected. So because it's his job to stay with the captive, he's not aware of who hired the group. So he starts asking questions about uh, the, the ex fiance Jennifer. Does Denise know anything about her that would explain why this group was hired to abduct her? And Denise doesn't have a clue. All she really knows about Jennifer is that she and Aaron broke up because Jennifer cheated on him with a police officer from Fairfield. And the kidnapper is like, oh, that must be it. Sort of to himself. And so Denise is like, I don't know if he actually believed that or if he was saying more stuff to throw us off. Mm -hmm. Like it was very weird, but she didn't, he didn't explain his logic and she didn't know. She didn't ask. And so then she says, you know, she's still tired and she wants to sleep. So he leaves her alone. But then a while later he comes back. And she can sense, because again, she can't see him. She can sense that as soon as he walks into the room, something's wrong. She knows what's about to happen. He tells her that his associates watch the video and demand that it be done again. And then he goes, oh, you know what? Let me read exactly what they said. And he goes and he gets his cell phone and he comes back and he reads it out loud to her, quote, the recording must be believable. You have to look like a legitimate couple who has been having an affair for a while like this isn't the first time you've been together she can't wear the goggles you must kiss and say things to an indicate that this is an affair it must seem like you're both enjoying it so then he's like i've got to figure out how to do this because i don't know how to get to do this without you seeing me yeah. if you take your goggles off wow. so he leaves and she's sitting there thinking and thinking and then he comes back she's so scared and she's so panicked and she just knows that she needs to get this over with the faster it's over the faster she gets out of here hopefully so she thinks about 50 shades of gray and she asks about using maybe a necktie over her eyes as if they're playing like a kinky game role play and this sick dude sounds so awestruck and says you are incredible (gasps) how strong you are with all of this but I found some tape that I can put over your eyes. So that way it will just look like you have your eyes closed. So he's talking about like scotch tape, you know? Oh, yeah. Because that's totally humane. Well, yeah. I mean, but. God. I mean, what, the whole look at the whole thing, though. Then he says he needs to go prepare. And she asks him before he leaves if she can have some wine. Because she just, you know. Yeah. And he casually says, oh, of course, red or white. <laughs> and she's like, I don't care. Yeah. Alcohol. Yeah. I'll take rubbing alcohol at this point. Seriously, give me some. So not only does she obviously not want to experience experience this again, but now she can't lay there and just detach from it all. She has to perform and pretend to enjoy it. Her life literally depends on giving a convincing performance in this video. So she does not want to be sober for this. He brings her wine and some small bottles of booze, And he goes in the other room to prepare, whatever that means. And while he's gone, she chugs all of it. And then he comes back and he sees that it's all gone. And he teases her like, you started without me. Okay, read the room, bud. And then he says, okay, it's time. So he turns away while she takes the goggles off and puts the small pieces of tape on her eyes to prevent her from you know accidentally seeing him. Then he undresses her and he gets on the bed. She said his body was cold- his hands and arms and back were all dry and coarse like he had acne or flaky skin. <sighs> she managed, you know, she had her, the so the tape is like over her eyelids but not over her lashes. So f- she instinctually sort of opened her eyes a little bit and yeah. she could see a little like slit and she could see that he was a white male and that he had kind of dark wavy hair. Okay. And then she, you know, quickly shut her eyes because she realized that she had, like, instinctually opened them. She could feel when he kissed her that he had very, very thin lips and that his chin was very pronounced and would literally jab into her whenever their faces were close or when he would kiss her. She said his body felt like the warmth of life had been removed from it. And the only way that she could pretend that she was enjoying it was to imagine she was with Aaron except every touch reminded her this person couldn't be further from that. Yeah, She says she cringes with every word she says, every move she makes to insinuate she's enjoying it. It makes her feel like she's cheating on Aaron, but she knows she has to give a good performance because if she doesn't, she won't survive a third yeah. rape. She can't handle this happening a third time, especially if she needs to pretend to be engaging. And then it's over. She's completely and utterly depleted and her hopes to survive this ordeal just feel crushed she knows they're nearing the 48 hour mark and she's terrified that he's going to change his mind about releasing her but he tells her he's gotten confirmation that Aaron did in fact go to the police and because of that Aaron will not be able to pick her up at the drop-off location as originally planned so he asks if she has any friends or family in the Bay Area and she tells him, no, they're all in Southern California. So he agrees to drive her to Huntington Beach and oh he will God. and he will drop her off a mile or two away from her mom's house. And from <sighs> there, she can walk the rest of the way. He asks her if her family has money and she doesn't respond because she's thinking, oh, my God, they're going to bankrupt my parents for a ransom. Like, yeah. what am I what have I done? And I shouldn't have said this. So she's kind of she pauses and he seemed to sense what she was thinking. Mm-hmm. And he goes, I am not asking you because we plan to get a ransom for them. I'm asking because you'll need to hire an attorney. And she's like, a what, a what? Why? For why? And he says, because Aaron went to the police, you'll have to speak to them and they will ask you a lot of questions and you can answer them, but you will want an attorney present with you to protect your rights. Thanks for the legal advice. The average attorney costs about $5,000. Do you think your family can afford that? And I just need to say really quickly, like it infuriates me to no end that this kidnapper also believes that you should always have an attorney present when you're talking to the cops. Like I hate that. I resent that I agree with him. Yes. (laughs) It bugs me so much. He is right. And then he says, do you want a TV in here so you can watch the DVD? You deserve it. He gives her dinner and more wine another sedative and he brings in a TV for her to watch a French movie with English subtitles and then he's like I want to show you something and he hands her an iPad to show her an article on her disappearance and oddly he told her like you can remove your goggles to read it and but then he didn't like move away so she she was really trying to not see him so she would like shielded herself like she was not going to risk looking at him so she's reading this article and in it they report that aaron went to the police on monday morning to report his girlfriend's kidnapping and in her head she's like oh my god the irony i've been wanting him to call me his girlfriend for months oh my god now the first time (laughs) she's ever referred to is that it's like Uh, this we're all the same yeah i love that she keeps reading and sees a quote from her dad mike He had said, if she sees this, I want her to know that the family is here. We love her and we're not giving up. And she just, you know, breaks down sobbing uncontrollably. She is so devastated imagining what her family is going through. Because until seeing this, she had no idea what was happening outside of this room. Like, had Aaron been hurt? Had he gone to the police? Had anyone informed her family? Or were they just blissfully unaware? And she had naively hoped... That her family didn't know what was happening because it was almost unbearable experiencing this but even worse imagining her family's pain mm-hmm. so she's sobbing so much she can't even finish reading the article she's finally feeling the full weight of all that has happened all of the emotions that she's kept at bay in order to survive are now erupting out of her and he kind of like awkwardly kind of pats her back you know and without thinking she asks the kidnapper will you hold me and so he sits down and he holds her to his chest and tries to comfort her and she immediately felt ashamed and embarrassed and yanked away from him and thought to herself that piece of shit he broke me and then he tells her to get some rest because they need to get on the road at 2 a.m and that the drive will probably be eight or nine hours Meanwhile, Aaron has been bouncing between meetings with his attorneys, staying at a friend's house to get away from all of the reporters, and meeting with the police for more questioning, obviously with his attorney present this time. Good. During one of these meetings with police, he hears the proof of life audio and confirms it's definitely Denise's voice. During this whole interrogation ordeal, Aaron hasn't had his cell phone. He handed it over to the police right away and they kept it as evidence, but also because Aaron had told them that the kidnappers would, would try to make contact with him on his cell phone. But during that first day of interrogation, Mustard had told Aaron that part of the reason they didn't believe him is because no one had tried contacting his cell phone. No calls, no texts, no emails. Whoever these supposed kidnappers were, they weren't making periodic contact like Aaron said they would be. So when Aaron heard that, his heart sank and he thought he'd basically dug Denise's grave by going to the cops because no attempt at contact meant the kidnappers truly had been watching him the whole time and knew he was now with the police. But during this most recent sit down with the cops where he's listening to the proof of life audio, an officer gave Aaron his phone back and he was astounded to find that the cops were right. There were no calls, no texts, no emails. There was nothing but while he's looking through it Aaron's attorney is looking at it his phone over his shoulder and is like wait Aaron the phone is on airplane mode <gasps> and he's so oh and he's like oh my god and he frantically turns it off and his phone is flooding with messages from friends and family and contact from the kidnappers Aaron <gasps> finds two emails From the kidnappers, one was time-stamped from Monday at 7.46 p.m. that read, we will call you at 9 p.m. on your mobile phone. Your liaison will be the same contact as during the acquisition phase. Please verify that you have received this message. Obviously, he didn't. And then there was another follow-up email at 8.13 p.m. that read, we are waiting on your acknowledgement. Aaron is reading this. He's discovering this at Tuesday after 11 p.m., so 24 it, hours later. Well over easily, 20, yeah. easily. And the thing about these two emails is that they were both marked as read. Which means the cops read it. The authorities opened and read both messages. And then sometime after this, somebody put the phone on airplane mode and then went back to Aaron to tell him that these supposed kidnappers hadn't made contact with him at lied all. lied to him. He also... Um, was flooded with like a lot of unknown numbers he didn't know. And a lot of them had been reporters who got yeah. a hold of his number, but others were just missed calls. And so he had wondered to himself, how did they decipher or did they know? Or, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. And so and he can obviously see in his call log which ones came came through versus which ones didn't until after he turned it off airplane mode. Gotcha. So so the police then tell him that they want Aaron to reestablish contact with the kidnappers. And in his mind, he's like, fuck off. Yeah. Like, you guys are the ones who ended the contact. But obviously, he agrees to write a response back to try to arrange Denise's release. But Aaron knows that the kidnappers know he's with the cops by now. This is national headline-making news by now. And the kidnappers have already proven they are way too calculated to fall for something like this. The police then inform Aaron that if the kidnappers make contact again and ask for a ransom the authorities can't legally provide that money so they ask aaron if he is willing to and he's like of course and if they need more than what i have I'm, I'm sure my parents will help this has never been about the money and the police are visibly disappointed with that response it's like they were expecting him to say no i'm not going to pay her ransom or something <sighs> yeah so at 2 a.m the kidnapper wakes denise and he says it's time to get in the car He says that she can ride in the passenger seat this time, but she'll need to take a double dose of the sedative to ensure she really is passed out the whole time. And obviously, she accepts it. Before getting on the highway, they stop at a gas station and he goes in to get snacks and water. He asked if she wanted anything and she asked for a pack of cigarettes. She'd given up smoking a long time ago, but that didn't matter in the moment, obviously. She needed the stress relief and if he was really, you know, going to take her to a location where he wanted to kill her, what difference does it make to her health? Yeah. So he comes back and he lights a cigarette for her and after taking a few puffs, she stops and says, I don't want to smell like an ashtray when I see my parents. And this dude has the nerve to laugh and tells her, I don't think you have anything to worry about. Are you kidding me? They're going to be so relieved to see you. It won't matter what you smell like. And then he tells her to drink a lot of water because the sedatives will probably make her feel hungover tomorrow. Many thanks. He gives her instructions on what to do once she's released. She has to go straight to her family and wait for the cops to come to her. She's allowed to tell the police about everything she has experienced and repeat everything he has said to her except for two things. And he makes it very, very clear. He says, you cannot tell them that any of us are in the military and you cannot tell them that we had sex. Then he gives her an easy-to-remember email address in case she ever needs to reach out to him, and obviously for a number of reasons. That just goes in one ear and out the other, and the sedative is taking hold, and she passes out. A few hours later, when the sun has come up, he wakes her and tells her to replace her blacked-out goggles with tape over her eyes, and then he hands her sunglasses to put over that, and she falls back to sleep as soon as she does it. A few hours later, she wakes up to the car slamming on its brakes and rear-ending someone. Mm -hmm. He tells her they've been stuck in LA traffic and he just rear-ended someone in front of them. He's going to get out and talk to them and she needs to stay there and not act suspicious. He gets out for a few minutes and then he's back in the car and he tells her there was no damage and they can keep driving and she nods off again. The next thing she knows, he's waking her and telling her they've arrived He's found a secluded spot for her to get out of the car and walk the rest of the way to her family. He says, quote, your strength through all of this has been admirable. Doing this, seeing what it does to someone, this isn't what I got into this for. And she asks if what he means is that he isn't going to do this type of thing again. And he says, no, no, I'm done. I am done with all of this. And I have you to thank for that. I wish we had met under different circumstances you are an incredible person then he helps her out of the car and he leaves her on the sidewalk and he says after you hear me drive away count to 10 before you open your eyes we will be watching you after I drive away and know if you disobey so she does as she's told and after she knows for certain he's gone she opens her eyes She's on a sidewalk in Huntington Beach and the kidnapper has set her belongings that he'd brought from Aaron's house next to her in a row and she starts booking it to her mom's house. On Wednesday, March 25th, 2015... Mike Huskins received a phone call from his neighbor that his missing daughter, Denise, was standing outside his front door asking for her dad. So obviously her family was overwhelmed with relief and her mom, Jane, said it devastated her to realize that she should have in fact stayed in Huntington Beach just like her instincts told her to. But Vallejo PD had led her to believe it was imperative that she fly up there only to discover she wasn't needed at all. Vallejo PD robbed her of the opportunity to be there to hold her daughter when she needed her mom the most. So friends and neighbors and her extended family that were still down there rushed to Denise to be with her and support her and show her she wasn't alone and that everyone had been there looking for her. And she spoke briefly with Huntington Beach Police only to have one of her cousins suddenly rush in and tell her, I'm acting as your attorney. Stop talking to the police. And Like, imagine for a moment, you're in Denise's shoes. Mm -hmm. You've been the victim of multiple crimes and you've just been released from captivity. Your first instinct is to obviously- Seek help. Yeah, I mean, the police are there to save you and protect you and get the bad guys that hurt you. So imagine her confusion and disorientation that her cousin arrives and insists he needs to be there as her attorney and that she needs to stop talking to the cops as if she's somehow a suspect. And the police ask her questions like, well did you ask him to let you go did you put up a fight questions insinuating that she brought this upon herself or at the very least that she didn't put enough effort in to get herself out of it like and what then were you wearing and then the police clarified to her that they they are treating her as a victim not a suspect and she's like like <laughs> duh of course yeah. why, why wouldn't you So she ends up flying to Vallejo to be reunited with her family and learns about everything that has taken place since Monday morning when she was taken from Aaron's home. She learns about Aaron being a suspect. She learns about the attitude and the treatment her family has experienced from Vallejo PD. And she learns, worst of all, that the Vallejo Police Department were openly disappointed and disgruntled to learn it was her on the Proof of Life audio and even more so when they heard she was alive and safely recovered in Southern California. And the cherry on top of all of this, within hours of learning she was alive, the Vallejo Police Department held a press conference to announce to the public that Denise had been safely recovered. And they said, quote, "'Today there is no evidence to support the claims "'that this was a stranger abduction or an abduction at all. "'Given the facts that have been presented thus far, "'this appears to be an orchestrated event and not a kidnapping.'" So they just do not believe this story. They believe this is entirely a hoax involving both Aaron and Denise, and they are willing to give immunity to one of them in exchange for telling the truth. But only one of them gets it, and whoever accepts it first is the winner. And they both turn it down and insist this is not a hoax. But that doesn't change the fact that the press have now taken and run with Phileo PD's version of events, and they start labeling Denise as the real-life Gone Girl and poor Denise hadn't read the book or seen the movie. And she asked, what does that mean? Is that a bad thing? Odd. Mustard spoke to Denise's cousin, the one acting as her attorney, and warned him that before he interrogates Denise, he just wants to make it clear that, quote, I don't want to hear any more of this Navy SEALs bullshit. And that he doesn't want to hear any more about frog suits, which I guess is referring to the wetsuits. Wet-suit. Denise's cousin is not a criminal defense attorney, so her family rushes to hire a top-notch attorney named Doug Rappaport. And like Aaron's attorney, they believe their clients are telling the truth and they end up spending years going to bat for them. So when poor Aaron learns that Denise is alive and safe, he's so relieved and he naively believes that this means the police have no choice but to believe him now. He assumes Denise turning up alive is proof enough that this was true. And certainly whatever information she has about her experience will only further prove that Aaron was never lying. Mm -hmm. So he goes to Vallejo PD and asks if he can speak to Denise. And one of the detectives tells him, well, we want to talk to her too, but she's gone and gotten herself a lawyer. Like he says it like that. Mm -hmm. Aaron and Denise are both torn about seeing each other and legally, They're not sure if they can see each other because if they are charged with like a criminal act, it could be years before they see each other. And then on the other hand, it's just very emotional. And so they want to see each other because they're relieved that they're both alive and safe. But neither one knows to expect. Erin worries that after treating Denise poorly before this, And then he and his connection to his ex, Jennifer, then brought this horrific experience on Denise. How could she want to be with him? And then for Denise, she worries that Aaron was already resistant to committing to her prior to this. So does this mean that he will just feel obligated to be with her and stay with her out of guilt so they don't see each other right away? Denise is questioned by Mustard and he tells her that her dad Mike had told the cops how tough Denise is and how resilient she is and how she's physically in great shape because she's a marathon runner. And Denise is like, yeah, what about it? And Mustard asks her, did you ever think about fighting back or escaping? And she explains that, of course she did, but she was drugged, bound, and blinded for almost 48 hours straight, and she and her family were repeatedly threatened with violence or death if she didn't comply. She had no idea if, you know, anyone would be be out there to harm Aaron, Mm -hmm. so she didn't bother making any attempts. And then he repeatedly notes in a very suspicious tone how calm she is and how odd he finds that. He asks if she's ever been in the trunk of a car before, just quote, messing around. And she says, no. He asks her if she urinated on herself at any point during this ordeal, particularly in the trunk of the car. And she's like, no, I've already told you they gave me bathroom breaks. And Mustard reacts like she answered the question incorrectly. And so the fact that Aaron and Denise both have Almost identical stories of the break-in isn't enough to convince authorities. It just convinced them that Denise and Aaron had rehearsed their stories thoroughly. The detectives also told Aaron that they were very suspicious of the level of detail he recalled. Oh, I'm sorry. And, I'm
1: sorry. I'm giving you a lot of information, right? Is and that was, what you want? He
0: was just like, "What? What is too many details? Yeah. Like, what? How do you even classify that?" As if the police accusing her of lying isn't enough. Denise has to relive her experience while she relays to them every second of her sexual assaults in graphic detail, like where he kissed her, what she said to him, the positions, what body parts of his touched, which body parts of hers, where she touched him, where she kissed him, what she said to him and so forth. All the while they are making it clear. They think she's lying, but then something incredible happens while Denise is being interviewed by the police, Vallejo PD receives an email from the kidnappers themselves, which corroborates Denise's story to a T, but that still isn't enough. They probably think that it was somehow they planned it. The police believe that the email came from Denise herself and that she just used some sort of an online system to time the email to be sent when she knew she would be interviewed. Totally. Totally. Denise underwent a sexual assault uh, exam at the hospital and the nurses determined that there had in fact been recent vaginal intercourse and Denise clarified to them that she did have consensual sex with Aaron on Sunday night. but the nurses assure her that enough time passed that from that encounter that there wouldn't be signs of it having happened and what they were finding had to have taken place within the last 24 to 48 hours. This still isn't enough for police to believe Denise's story. They just assume that she had sex with someone while she was hiding, pretending to be kidnapped. As you do. <laughs> right. And because she already explained to them that, you know, I didn't fight back. My life depended on cooperating, pretending to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. I don't have bruises or marks or any, yeah. any physical signs that point to um, a violent encounter. So they further didn't believe that. Denise agrees to be questioned again, but this time Mustard isn't there and she's being interviewed by a local FBI agent named Dave Sesma. They go through the entire story again and by the end of it he tells her, quote, there are a lot of inconsistencies in your statement. I'd like to advise you that lying to a federal agent is a federal crime, a violation of 18 U.S.C. section 1001. Is there anything about your statements that you want change after this interrogation ends the agent speaks with denise's attorney privately and then later the attorney tells denise and her family that the agent said i am 99 percent certain she's lying about this have you seen the movie gone girl it'll explain a lot aaron and denise agreed to meet on saturday and they had the most emotional raw beautiful reunion the fears that they'd had that they had each had prior to seeing each other completely faded away and they knew they were both 100% committed to one another and they've been together every day ever since so while the break in and the kidnapping and the rapes are all traumatizing the authorities treatment of them was also traumatizing but in addition the media and the public now believes a hundred percent that aaron and aaron and denise have faked this entire ordeal wasting tax, do- tax dollars as well as the FBI and Vallejo PD's valuable time and resources. So they start to get bullied and harassed online, which is also very traumatizing. They're receiving death threats, accusations of, you know, how many people, how many women were assaulted and victimized while she was out here wasting places. Pretending. Yeah, pretending to be, you know, horrible things like that. But then they also see that people that they've known in the past, like friends from high school or college or former colleagues, like a lot of them are jumping in on it and like reposting these things that are calling it a hoax. So, I mean, it was really devastating everywhere. Of course everywhere. it was
1: alienating.
0: Even Jennifer, his ex-fiance, and the Fairfield cop that she's with now. Not shocked. Are posting things on social media insinuating that Denise and Aaron orchestrated this as a hoax. Her, she, Jennifer even posted this thing about like this year I, I my goals were to learn to knit and learn this and learn like she was like posting goals or something. And her Fairfield cop boyfriend responded to it and was like, and my goal for this year is to make sure you're not kidnapped out of your bed while you're learning these things or something like that. So it's just like good people, people just making Solid light people. of it. Yeah, it's terrible. The police announced in a press conference that they have officially come to believe that Aaron and Denise pulled off an elaborate hoax and that they owe the FBI, Vallejo the PD, and the community an apology. What would they get out of this? Like, if you really take That's, a step back and look at they it, they have gotten nothing. They haven't gotten anything. I mean, they've just spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in attorney's fees and had their reputations ripped. Have they had apart. to relocate? Yeah. I'll get more into that. Okay. It didn't even matter, though, that the kidnappers had sent the police and the San Francisco Chronicle multiple emails. It, one of them was as long as 19 pages where they were um, threatening the police with violence if they didn't publicly apologize to Denise and Aaron and clear their names Like, the kidnappers are, like, the only people coming to their defense. And they knew it was from the kidnappers because they knew details that the public hadn't heard about. Okay. Because I was going to say, that's,
1: but that even in itself would be almost weirder to me. And I'm not saying into defense of anybody. But the fact that the kidnappers who are assaulting, abusing, you know, doing a ton of damage to these two innocent humans for them to come forth and be like leave these people alone they're good people it's on us that's not realistic like all everything about
0: this yeah is goes again and that's what the cops argue yeah. like you know kidnappers don't do this they don't defend their no. their victims and but f- for again like I'm not defending the kidnappers but they were trying to use this as PR for their organization now they're they're not getting credit yeah seriously (laughs) Uh, so the cops just obviously believe that they're aaron and denise continue to send these emails themselves and they even accused their attorneys of like helping them write them so it was just stupid as time goes by aaron and denise try to piece their life back together while also dealing with ptsd this ordeal would obviously flip anyone's world upside down, but the added betrayal of the authorities' accusations and the media running with it as if it was truth, it's something you just can't prepare for. They both have to fight with Kaiser to keep their jobs. They move away because they don't feel safe in Vallejo. How could they? If they're ever pulled over, have an emergency, need to call the police, they have every reason not to trust Vallejo PD. Mm -hmm. And then that decision actually proved to be the right decision After moving away, Aaron put his Mare Island home up for sale and left it up to his real estate agent to handle everything. Aaron had no intention of ever going back there, but one day his agent calls him and tells him that when she arrived at the home, she discovered there were squatters living in the house who claimed that Aaron had rented it to them. And that wasn't true. The story in his home had been all over the news, so clearly these two idiots broke in and just started living there. Aaron still had a lot of his things in the home and didn't plan to move it all out until the house was officially sold, so he asked the agent to call the police, and Aaron would drive up and go through the home to see if the squatters had stolen anything. And sadly, he discovers they had essentially emptied his home of all of the valuables, including a ton of expensive woodworking projects and equipment from the garage. Before the kidnapping, Aaron's dad had been diagnosed with cancer and they'd started a recent woodworking project that they all worried may be the last that they did together. Yeah, This had been a hobby that Aaron shared with his dad and he was devastated to find that project he built with his dad was gone. And in a move that shocks no one, Vallejo PD did nothing. So remember that FBI agent Dave Sesma, the one who was like, it's a federal crime to lie to a federal yes, agent. yes, yes, yes. It turns out he had been the FBI agent that Jennifer had dated prior to Aaron, the one who she was like, yeah, I had an affair with him. And when Aaron was with Jennifer, he had crossed paths with Dave Sesma in social settings. So there was no way that Dave didn't know about his connection to this kidnapping case. And after being put on the case where he certainly has a conflict of interest, He should have reported that to his supervisors and been replaced, but he didn't. Instead, he poked and prodded Denise for every graphic detail of her ordeal. Aaron and Denise's attorneys wrote formal complaints to the FBI, but Sesma was never removed from the case. And we know for certain that Sesma was aware of the conflict of interest because he made it a point to interview Denise, who never would have known of his connection to Jennifer. Mm Mm-hmm but he avoided interviewing or coming into contact with Aaron at all costs because he knew that Aaron would recognize him. Of course. So all of these people, even the FBI, are sketchy. They're all sketchy. Okay, so anyways, a few months after this ordeal, the FBI agents on the case reach out to Aaron and Denise and say they've had a break in the case. They meet with investigators to look at some photos. They show a photo of a generic-looking white guy. Someone Aaron said that would... Totally blend into a crowd. But Aaron never saw anyone during the ordeal. He only heard that voice. And then the most that Denise saw was when she was raped with the tape on her eyes. She thought she saw that he had dark hair and might have been white. And she knew from the feeling that he had thin lips and a very pronounced chin. And the man in the photo has dark, wavy hair, thin lips, and a pronounced chin. Okay. The agents show them photos of blacked out goggles that look identical to the ones that they found at Aaron's house, the ones he had worn. And they say, we found these goggles at this guy's house and there was a long blonde hair attached to them. We think this is the guy. (gasps) But I want to give credit where credit is due and it is not due to these agents. Someone else solved the case and they tried to take credit for it. Not shocked once again. Yeah. A detective with the Alameda County Sheriff's Office named Misty Carasu was told on June 8th, 2015, that she was needed to help execute a search warrant on a home in South Lake Tahoe. It was related to a home invasion that happened in the Bay Area town of Dublin, which is about 188 miles from Tahoe. And then just for reference, Dublin is a, like a 40-minute drive from Vallejo. Mm-hmm. Only a couple of months after Aaron and Denise's home invasion and kidnapping... An elderly couple experienced an almost identical break-in in in their Dublin home on June 5th. The intruder left behind zip ties, duct tape, and his cell phone, which is how the police were able to trace this case all the way to a property in South Lake Tahoe. They contacted supposedly a a woman, and she said that the phone belonged to her adult son, who was staying at the family vacation home in South Lake Tahoe. okay. The man had woken the, the elderly couple in the same manner. The room was blinded with white light and there were red lasers darting around the room. The man told them that he was not here for them, but for their adult daughter who was asleep in the next room. Unlike Denise and Aaron's break-in, the robber approached the couple and attached the zip ties himself, but in doing so, he stood too close to them for too long and the couple fought back and the wife managed to run out of the room and call 911. 911. And the intruder fled before the police arrived and left all of that evidence behind. Good for her. Good for them. <laughs> yeah. But he hit the, the old man in the head with a flashlight. But they were, they all You're survived. Okay. But it's still a very traumatizing, traumatizing experience. And he got hurt. So the man that they issued an arrest warrant for was somebody named Matthew Moeller, a 38-year-old Harvard Law School graduate and ex-Marine. <gasps> he was also an immigration attorney, but he had just recently been disbarred. Wow. So Misty and her colleagues had to use a battering ram to break through the front door of Mueller's Tahoe home, only to find he had piled trash, chairs, and even a massage table against the front door. And when the police entered, they found Mueller standing stock still, totally silent in the hallway. And he just like let them approach him and handcuff Mm -hmm. them. Misty took a photo of him before he was put in the back of a police cruiser And then walk through the home. And that's the photo that they showed Aaron and Denise. She said it was dirty and littered with clothes and trash and just random junk. And the windows were all like covered in cardboard. They found a stolen white Ford Mustang. A penis pump next to a bottle of lotion. An open container of Vaseline next to a laptop. A stun gun. A box full of license plates. A key maker for Ford vehicles. A duffel bag with a blow-up doll dressed all in black and wrapped in thick metal wire. Nerf guns painted black with red lasers point red laser pointers attached. Tons of duct tape and zip ties and several pairs of swimming goggles blacked out with duct tape over the lenses, and one of them had a long blonde hair stuck to it. So just like your standard uh, man cave. <laughs>
1: yeah, pretty <laughs> typical. All the essentials.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the victims from the Dublin home invasion weren't blonde. So she could have easily ignored this, Mm -hmm. but she had a terrible gut feeling as she gathered evidence from the home, walking room to room. She knew in her gut something bad had happened there, and she just couldn't let go of the question who had their blonde hair ripped out on those goggles. So she decided to look further into Mueller. They had no issue connecting him to the Dublin crime, but she just had this feeling that there was so much more he was connected to. So she saw in his police record that Mueller was connected to multiple home invasions and attempted sexual assaults throughout the Bay Area over several years, including several where he forced the women to drink NyQuil or NyQuil mixed with something else. But every time his DNA was tested against the DNA that was left at the scene, it wasn't a match. And so without being able to prove it, the police always suspected that he planted DNA to intentionally throw them off his trail. Okay, makes sense. So Misty spent weeks investigating Mueller. She contacted every police department who had files on him. And the only department who didn't return her calls was Vallejo. The reason that she even reached out to them was because after she tracked down the owner of the stolen Mustang at Mueller's Tahoe home, the owner told her this. He was a student living on Mare Island in Vallejo and that he and his friends always suspected that Matthew Mueller had not only stolen the car, but was also involved in Aaron and Denise's home invasion because the car was stolen right around that time. This young man and his friends knew of a peeping Tom on the island who they called the Mare Island Creeper, a guy who had been peeking in people's windows and taking photos the summer before. The reason they knew of this particular man is that he and a bunch of his friends are like college students, caught the Mare Island Creeper, in the act and yeah. they followed him to a property where Matthew Muller was and he claimed that, you know, you're wrong. I wasn't doing what you thought I was. And then when they reported it to the police, uh, Muller was gone by the cops tried to follow up. So after that happened, when the Mustang was stolen right around the home invasion, this young man went to Vallejo PD to say, I think this guy, Matthew Muller, is connected. And they didn't follow up with him. So he tells Misty this and that is the only reason that Misty even learned of this story. So she starts researching and she's reading all about this and she's devastated to see mm-hmm. these poor people have been so failed by the authorities Absolutely. that they went to for help. And she just keeps calling Vallejo again and again and again and again. When she finally reached someone, they dismissed her and referred her to the FBI and she managed to get Agent Sesma on the phone and she told him, I have a person you may want to meet in the Vallejo kidnapping case that you guys called a hoax. And Sesma snapped at her and said, we never called it a hoax. But then, nevertheless, the FBI looked into all of Misty's gathered evidence and finally pieced it together. And that's when they called Aaron and Denise to claim that they had made a break in the case. For Denise and Aaron, hearing one of the criminals has been apprehended is somewhat nice, but it's only one of at least three people involved. And the arrest doesn't change the reality reality that they're now living in, one where they're viewed as liars by the public. And to make matters worse, all of the evidence that authorities have that now prove Aaron and Denise have been telling the truth all along is listed in an arrest affidavit written by the FBI. But it has to remain sealed in order to preserve evidence for a future trial. So months go by before it's safe to finally unseal it and release it to the public, And when it is, all of the justice Aaron and Denise expected to feel goes out the window. One of the worst blows was the fact that their names were not listed. Denise and Aaron were both asked by the FBI if they wished to remain anonymous or would they prefer to be named as the victims. Sexual assault victims typically request to remain anonymous in public documents, but Aaron and Denise were determined to get the truth out there and clear their names and restore their reputations, so they specifically asked to be named in the affidavit. But then they find that they weren't. Denise is referred to as Victim F, and Aaron is referred to as Victim M. Denise said, quote, Now when we actually want our names in the press, our request is ignored without explanation. Victim F could be anyone. It's a generic label that makes me feel like I am no one to them. We are no one to them. It strips us of our identities in the midst of the most traumatic events of our lives and reduces us to anonymous nobodies, just blank faces. And maybe that's the point. We don't matter to them. We never did. So in addition to this, plenty of the 59-page affidavit is written as though Denise and Aaron are still somewhat suspects, even though its only purpose is to arrest Matthew Mueller for these exact crimes. So it just makes no sense. But it just further proves that despite all of the evidence, it's just not enough to redeem Aaron and Denise in the eyes of the authorities. So reading through this affidavit, they learn a lot of very upsetting things for the first time. The first is... After Aaron handed over his phone on Monday, within hours of the kidnapping, the kidnappers called Aaron's cell phone multiple times while it was in police custody. The first calls went through, while the last one did not, presumably because the phone was turned onto airplane mode by that point. Mm-hmm. So Mustard openly lied to Aaron about the kidnappers' lack of communication. The second one is, because this was a potential kidnapping, AT&T cooperated with authorities immediately. So within hours of Aaron reporting this crime, police had traced the kidnappers' phone calls to Aaron's cell phone. They had traced it, the calls that they claimed didn't happen also, which yeah. is just like what the f- bizarre. They traced it to an intersection in South Lake Tahoe, <gasps> an intersection that we later find out was only seven miles from the location of Matthew Muller's home. So if they had done their jobs, police could have saved Denise prior to the sexual assaults, but they didn't. Had they saved her then, they also would have prevented that family in Dublin from being victimized as well. The third is the police confirmed on Wednesday the 25th, the same day that Denise was released, that those calls that came from that Tahoe intersection were made from a burner phone and somehow they tracked down that that very phone had been purchased at a Target store in the town of Pleasant Hill, which is like a 20-minute drive from Vallejo. They found security footage of a light-skinned male with dark hair, medium build, wearing dark clothing, purchasing the phone on March 2nd, three weeks before the kidnapping. And instead of piecing this together, they tried to use this as proof that the unidentified unidentified male in the video was actually Aaron. Even though they probably look nothing alike. It's just unidentified. Yeah. It's just a male. Just any man. Denise made the excellent point that the police believed all of this stuff proved Aaron and Denise were pulling a prank. And with all of that information that they gathered within 48 hours, they could have gone straight to Tahoe and caught Denise like in the act. Of course. So regardless of what the police believed to be true, the fact of the matter is they had gathered sufficient evidence to solve this immediately, yet they didn't. Instead, they continued bullying Aaron, his family and Denise's family and then after Denise was released, the authorities dug their heels in and continued bullying and spreading a false theory. The affidavit excluded key pieces of Denise's statement, pieces to the puzzle that could have solved this or connected Mueller to this case way faster. But it also has straight up lies like littered throughout it. Like, for example, the, F- the female FBI agent who had to sit in the room during Denise's sexual assault exam claimed that there were no signs of non-consensual sex. But that isn't true. The test actually just said that... There was activity that she had been... Yeah, the test showed that there had, in fact, been intercourse in the last day or two. So the FBI agent choosing to label it as consensual was a total punch to the gut for Denise and not necessary because that's not the way that the nurses listed it. And the thing that was almost too bizarre to believe... The affidavit lists the emails the kidnappers sent to police, and in it they go hard, corroborating every minute detail Aaron and Denise told the police. The kidnappers are determined to clear the names of the victims, which, again, is why the police are just like, Well, this doesn't make sense. It never happened before, so that's not, that's not real. There's no way it can happen if it hasn't happened. So I included the 59-page affidavit on our website next to the episode sources, so if anyone is interested in it, it's in this week's blog post, and it's um, very interesting. The affidavit also reveals that authorities found among Mueller's possessions a drone video filming through a window Aaron and Denise having sex on the couch hours before the kidnapping. This along with the news that the authorities found and had to watch both videos of Mueller raping Denise was devastating and traumatizing all over again. Knowing these men who didn't believe her to begin with have now watched and studied the most violating moments of her life as well as a very private moment with Erin, there are just no words. So having these videos as evidence will help her prove that she isn't lying but the reality is when they go to court, she knows that the prosecution will claim that it's a rape, and the defense will say she enjoyed it, and Denise will have to relive, relive this whole trauma all over again and defend herself for surviving it. Aaron and Denise hire attorneys to represent them in their civil lawsuit against Vallejo, and throughout this, they learn that compared to others, they are actually quite lucky in their experience with Vallejo PD. They're alive and they're free, but the majority of people who come into contact with this police department aren't so lucky. In 2012 alone, Vallejo's rate of police-involved shootings of unarmed citizens was 38 times the national average, and the majority of those officers were back on the force faster than seemed reasonable, and rather than be punished, most of them were rewarded with promotions and awards. So going up against law enforcement in court was going to be incredibly difficult. It's a very insulated field Mm -hmm. that is designed to protect them from frivolous lawsuits. But they were determined to hold Vallejo accountable for their actions. Almost two years after the kidnapping on March 16th, 2017... Mueller has pled guilty. He's been charged with the, with the kidnapping and he's pled guilty and Aaron and Denise deliver the most compelling emotional victim impact statements at Mueller sentencing. This will be the first time that either, either of them speaks publicly and the first time that they have come face to face with Matthew Mueller. So Aaron goes first. He tells the courtroom of all that he and Denise have lost, the ripple effect of the things that Matthew Mueller has destroyed and the impact that he has had And that he believes society is safer with Mueller behind bars. In one part of his statement, he said, quote, I saw a quote that read, In the end, be your own hero because everyone's busy trying to save themselves. That person never met Denise Huskins. She sacrificed her mind, her body, her spirit to save those who she loves, to save me. Denise convinced the devil to let her free only to be demonized by self-proclaimed saviors. Nevertheless, she is a woman of beauty and warmth, serving those in need. Denise, you are my favorite person. You are my hero. Yikes. Okay. (laughs) I know, it's so emotional. And Muller did not show any emotion or look up from his seat the whole time. Okay, but now I'm gonna cry because I gotta <laughs> read hers. What she says to him—it is so emotional. So at the beginning of Denise's statement, she feels every eye in the room on her except for Mueller. She was determined to make him look at her one way or another. She was going to make sure he looked at her while she said what she needed to say, because neither of them had been able to see each other. Mm-hmm. So she marched up to the podium. But instead of speaking into the mic, she turned and faced him. She said she had never felt so ready for something in her life, and she was going to make sure everyone in that room heard her, even without a mic. She said that she felt herself stand taller, her chest open and bold and powerful. She looked directly at him and said his name with force, Matthew Muller. He looked at her His eyes stayed locked on hers during everything she said, and she shouted at him, Now we meet face-to-face, eye-to-eye. I am Denise Huskins, the woman behind the blindfold. And she shouted her name because she said, I am not victim F, the real-life gone girl, a hoaxer, or just a body to take, a random life to threaten because it wasn't meant for her but for somebody else. She tells him, I am the woman you raped, drugged, tortured, and attempted to manipulate. She reminded him that she shared with him the fact that she had been molested as a child in the hopes that he would spare her. She said, quote, After sharing that, you still made the decision to rape me, and not just violating my body, but forcing me to perform, to act, and have it recorded. You couldn't just take my physical body and let me be detached from it like I was in the first rape as you flopped me around the bed like a rag doll. This second time, you made me perform. Let's pretend like we are with other people, the people we love, to get us through it, as if this were happening to the both of us. I saw right through all of this, but I knew I had to appease you. The only way I got through it was to picture it was Aaron that I was with. That will haunt me for the rest of my life. I know you did that on purpose to leave your mark on me in the most special and intimate moments of my life. And then Denise directs the rest of her statement to the court and explains all the ways in which this has impacted her and imploded her life, that the depth of the terror she feels is so deep that she has to figure out how to live side by side with it. And then Matthew Muller is sentenced to 40 years in prison. 40. Part of the plea agreement because he pled guilty, and part of that was an agreement that he couldn't be uh, sentenced for more than 40 years. And he was, he's 38, correct? Yeah. Two days later, surrounded by their loved ones, Aaron asks Denise to marry him. And they got married in September of 2018, and Denise's attorney, Doug, officiated their wedding ceremony. He said, quote, Denise and Aaron are shining examples of how to find love in tragedy, strength in sorrow, and power in reconnection. And many of their first dates took place in Sonoma wine country, so they decided to have a little, like, mini honeymoon there. Very sweet. And after a long and draining fight, Aaron and Denise accepted a settlement of $2.5 million from the city of Vallejo, which is, I get a lot of money, but... Not nearly enough, in my opinion.
1: enough for what they went through.
0: Misty Karasu, the detective who actually solved this case, who believed Aaron and Denise and was heartbroken to hear how the authorities had failed them, she finally reached out to them after everything had settled down, and she and her husband have since become very close friends with Aaron and Denise. In 2019, Matthew Muller represented himself and filed a request for a new trial. Aaron and Denise are both required to give depositions where they relive this trauma yet again. And if it were to go to trial, Mueller will be able to question both of them on the stand for as long as he wants to. He'll have access to all of the tapes, including the drone video of she and Aaron and the two rapes. And as someone who's representing himself. Like all lunatics do. Yeah, he has. more. Well, except he was a lawyer. (laughs) I mean Lunatic, it is crazy. Though. I know. I'm I'm not saying that it makes sense. But I guess he sense. was
1: the most qualified, seeing as he went to Harvard.
0: Yeah. But eventually he is deemed not fit to stand trial, thank God. So they had to go through the depositions, which was terrible, but at least they didn't have to be questioned by him on the stand. But even today, there are still massive chunks of this story missing. Like who were the other people at Aaron's house and why was Aaron's ex fiancee Jennifer targeted? who hired Mueller's group, like who wrote the emails to the police in the San Francisco Chronicle. Mueller refuses to answer those questions and maintains that he will protect the integrity of the organization by not sharing any details. Detective Matt Mustard later said on why he didn't believe Aaron's story, quote, based on my past experience investigating crime, I found it implausible that unknown persons wearing scuba gear would break into the home through unknown means in the middle of the night with headphones, soothing music, and pre-recorded instructions. They would drug their victims and check their blood pressure. That they would bring Mr. Quinn downstairs with blankets and books for the night. That they would set up a fake camera, fooling a smart and educated man like Mr. Quinn for hours. That they would move Miss Huskins' car from the driveway so that they could abduct her in Mr. Quinn's car. And after going to such elaborate lengths, that they would demand such a small ransom. Shame on him. He's a fucking idiot. An idiot. And he spells his name with only one T Matt with one T, which is really irritating. <laughs> infuriating. Me. Despite multiple complaints and proof that Mustard was corrupt in various cases, he was awarded for outstanding police work the year this happened. And Vallejo PD <laughs> remains as corrupt as ever. Yeah. Of and course. I don't and I don't mean to talk shit like on the actual city of Vallejo. I no, used to work there, not. so I had spent a lot of time there. And like I don't have anything against the actual city. Mm. But I will absolutely never again step foot into that place. I don't ever want to risk putting my life or my future in the hands of any police love, department. Yeah. In June of twenty twenty, it was revealed that a small secretive group within the Vallejo PD bent the points of their star badges each time they killed someone in the line of duty. And some of them celebrated these kills with rituals like backyard barbecues. And an ex-captain sued the city of Vallejo and the police department for wrongful termination. He claims he was fired after standing up to police misconduct. And he said that prior to the press conference where the Vallejo PD said that Aaron and Denise needed to apologize, he overheard officers state, burn that bitch. As if we needed any more evidence to hate them yeah these are the cops that give other cops very bad names of course it's pretty embarrassing yeah um so obviously this is already such a long story and it's so dense with details and every last one of them is important and crucial to share and believe it or not i had to leave out a lot yeah but it really is the most moving experience to read this couple's story in their own words They have been victimized over and over and over again on every single turn, but their story deserves our attention and they deserve our support and you can't help but be very inspired by their strength and their bravery. So I highly suggest buying their book, Victim F. And then to close this on a beautiful note. Okay. On March 25th, 2020, Mm -hmm. five years to the day of Denise's release, she gives birth to their daughter, Olivia. Denise said, quote, "It's a miraculous fresh start, a sense of life coming full circle and showing us that no matter what difficulties we may face, there is always a chance for renewal. We realize we are truly blessed and know that what could have been a devastating end was really just the start of something remarkable." And that's the story of Denise Huskins and Aaron Quinn. <sighs> it was a whirlwind <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's so crazy it is so insane and I'm so happy that it I mean it's frightening obviously the media portrayal and it makes me so happy that you like brought awareness to their story just the the people that listen to this podcast because I remember hearing briefly about this and I wrote it off just based off yeah, of the way that the media, I wrote it off too it was she was the real life gone girl and I was like oh yeah. god infuriating move on have no interest
0: and I I, after I started reading their book and actually like writing this script for today I asked my parents uh like if, you they, if they knew that story and they're like oh yeah that hoax thing and I'm like
1: yeah. but it's not
0: I was like just wait till my episode comes yeah. out but I had maybe like a year ago I like I will randomly like collect random articles or names of different Crime stories, yeah. as just, you know, something Pique to fall back interest. on when I'm trying to figure out what story to do next. Mm-hmm. And so I had written down Denise Huskins because I had read this like brief article on it. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I wonder if it's true mm-hmm. or if that's a mm-hmm. lie. And when I started researching it, I only had all of these articles to go off of that paint it painted as a yeah. hoax. And I was just kind of like, I don't know. It seems so weird because they clearly didn't gain anything from this. So I have a hard time believing. Yeah, you didn't buy it. Yeah. And then just by chance, I saw that they had just released this book, I think this year. Yeah. Just like a couple of months ago. So I ordered it and I was just like, oh my God, I'm so grateful that they like had the bravery to do this. Mm-hmm. And they said, they say this beautiful thing in their, in their book about how, how humbled and inspired they are by other survivors in their stories and that they just hope that their story helps someone yeah. and it's amazing it and is amazing I'm I really really hope that people will buy that book like even if you don't have any interest in reading it just go buy it and support donate it somewhere just support them wow we cried i know i had a really hard time because yeah. i could see you crying the whole time and i was trying not to look at you and i was just my voice cracked so many yeah. times because i knew i was about to start crying
1: yeah well, well thank you for sharing that story you did a really good job thank you and i know everyone's gonna really like it
0: thanks Kay. okay love you, love you. bye <laughs>
1: Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. For all of our detailed source material, please visit our website, thecrimebarpodcast.com. If you'd like to see content from today, you can find us on Instagram at CrimeBarPodcast. We really love doing this show. And if you'd like to help with the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, which we have linked on our website as well as our Instagram, patreon.com slash crimebar podcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley Johnson and Ana Katharina. We'll see you next week.